0: I scared you off with all my divorce talk. No, I was, like, really hanging on, and then I was like, what? It was really annoying. Yeah. Um, but it, you learned yeah. to live your life better, and I guess I'll hear the rest of that conversation when we edit the podcast. Later on, yeah. <laughs> hey, welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a corporate drone living in Eastern Europe working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects.
1: And I'm Megan, a librarian turned freelance book indexer and proofreader also working on a novel while raising two boys with my husband and making PB&Js by the dozen.
0: In today's episode, we talk to Ashley Maynard, an award-winning filmmaker, librarian, and scholar who uses digital and analog technology to tell compelling stories. Her work as a director includes the documentary For Memory's Sake, which I've seen and really enjoyed, and it was shown in several film festivals and across the United States. More recently, she also directed the multimedia or transmedia project The Story of the Stuff, which explores how people send material things, teddy bears and flowers, in the aftermath of tragic gun crimes, and it's really interesting, so definitely recommend checking that out. She has also produced short and feature films, most recently Something Anything, which was a 2015 New York Times Critics' Pick. She's also a past recipient of a fellowship from the Sundance Institute and a prize from the American Library Association, and she's been named as someone to watch by film and librarian publications. Ashley's from Tennessee, but I met her almost 20 years ago when we were roommates in a study abroad program in Poland. I was so excited to invite her to our show so she could tell us how she balances her full-time day job as a librarian with so many other creative projects. We talked through a huge range of ideas and tips and tools, so we really recommend you check out our show notes today on our website, marginallypodcast.com, and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Thanks so much, Ashley, for joining our podcast. We're super excited to talk to you. First of all, can you just kind of talk through, obviously our podcast is about like balancing work and different projects, and I know you've always got a lot of different creative projects is one of the reasons that we're friends. Can you talk us through
2: kind of what that looks like for you? Sure. I used to joke that I was a librarian by day and filmmaker by night, and there were definitely a few years where that was true. Those, that was my, my day job was being a librarian, and my uh, creative pursuit on the side, my side hustle, as it were, uh, were was filmmaking and especially independent film producing. So, I kind of worked in that industry producing uh, feature length fictional films for other people in a kind of um, creative partnership role. And I always kind of considered that work kind of like a midwifery, <laughs> where you're, you're kind of essential to the birthing process, you're, but you're at the same time, you're not the birth mother, which can be a really challenging creative place to be because it's a very supportive and self effacing kind of role to be in which maybe doesn't jive with my personality completely, which is a little bit more controlling and egotistical. No way. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but I've also uh, directed films, uh, short films, and uh, feature-length web documentaries. So I have a lot of uh, passions and pursuits, but most of them involve the audio-visual in some way, shape, or form. And sometimes that blends in well with my... Day job and sometimes not so much. And then I have at various moments, had different creative pursuits that have involved teaching or or helping others. So I ran a youth video workshop for a number of years, and uh, I currently manage a nonprofit for librarians, or technically next generation librarians to help professional development not suck and to uh, give librarians a chance to be really kick ass at their jobs in an affordable environment. So, Lots of little side hustles, and, and that's kind of nice because they adapt as my personality and, and life has changed over time.
0: And do you, I mean, do you, you have a lot, I mean, that's a lot of different things going on. Do you typically have kind of one big creative project and you kind of focus on that, or how do you balance all of them?
2: I'm probably a little bit ADD in terms of my creative work. Sometimes it can be more focused. Certainly when I was producing film, uh, it became all-encompassing, and I would be focused for usually a couple of years on a particular project. Uh, And because of the time commitment involved, especially when you're in production where you're working very long days or I was shooting on weekends and doing casting calls at night, Or uh, for two years, I was commuting back and forth across states to cast a film and and shoot a film. That that has tended to be more focused. But now in my current role and having moved to New York, I'm dabbling a lot right now. Uh, In some ways, because before a project kind of takes over, I incubate a lot of ideas for a while until one is ready. And then when that one's ready to hatch, it becomes, you know, my my little baby chick that i have to foster for a while till it fledges um, so i'm kind of in an incubation mode right now and i don't know which eggs are fertile and which are just going to become you know rotten sulfurous i was going to say uh, breakfast <laughs> <laughs> oh well that's that's nicer than just like a stinky rotten egg but you know yeah
0: uh, you know maybe 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 that's the positive spin on it yeah you can just eat them it's fine
1: I'm just curious what a little more detail of what that uh incubation process looks like for you cuz I think Olivia and I are both sort of in that stage on the side of our sides of novels. So, um yeah, what does that look like? So, my incubation
2: right now and I live in a very digital world in terms of what I'm making. Um though I'm starting to experiment with some analog stuff which maybe we'll get to is I have a giant Evernote library, which is one of my favorite productivity tools in which I clip things and put them into folders. And sometimes it's just a fun thing that I, oh, this looks like a great craft or a recipe. And that's a pretty, you know, mild incubation. Um, Sometimes it's a little bit more playful, like I love Dolly Parton gifts. So (laughs) maybe there'll be a project somewhere, you know, down the line where those will become useful. Oh, I hope so right like maybe not she's just my hero so there's kind of you know a playful just creativity side of like my clipping and web uh, gleaning as it were and then sometimes it becomes a little bit more serious and I might experiment with it so for a while I've been very intrigued by the process of Japanese handmade paper making so washi making and I've done a lot of research I've read books I have explored a lot of uh, information online and I've even written some, not successful, though that's part of the creative process too, is a little bit of failure, uh, grant proposals to try to go over and do some filming on that project. Um, And that's one where, you know, now I've reached a point where I need to decide, am I gonna make this into something or am I gonna let it go? So I'm kind of in a a discernment phase with this project uh, and one thing I'm thinking is I think I may just want to go to Japan <laughs> and I, I'm not sure I actually want to make this project anymore but that's okay you know like that's an okay outcome and uh, on the plus side I've been saving money while this project has been incubating to pay for said trip to Japan and now it may be less expensive because I'm not going to need a cinematographer and you know I'm, I'm just going to go and buy a bunch of handmade papers and then maybe something comes out of it in a in a different way so uh, that's one thing I think I've gotten better at as I've gotten older is not tying myself to a project so being open to how it might transform and uh, reconfigure itself and also not not holding on to the idea of sunken costs you know this can be a really bad habit in your professional life and also in your personal life and relationships, <laughs> this concept of, of sunken costs and you've invested so much you can't abandon it now. And that's a terrible way to make a creative project. <laughs> and, you know, I, I am a big believer in the ability to kind of do what the French call bricolage, or there's a French verb, débrouiller. it's like to, to figure something out. So like, just because you've you've made something it didn't turn into what you wanted, it doesn't mean a it's not salvageable or b that it's the right thing. Uh, I kind of feel like it'll come back in its in the right time and in the right moment. So there's a little bit of um, woo woo there that I believe in, and in, in terms of serendipity and and things working themselves out. Many years ago, with like my first kind of project uh, that I completed outside of film school. I thought I was making a documentary about my family's annual barbecue, which is like a 150-year tradition, and I thought it was going to be this great thing about the burden of family traditions and was going to explore, you know, whether or not we should kind of keep things going for tradition's sake and that type of thing. And it completely transformed into an essay documentary about my grandmother's obsessive photography habit.
0: Which is a great film, by the way. I really, it's one of my, I love it. Oh, thanks! I seriously it's one of my favorite films. I just really love the way it's like so personal, but also about big things. Anyway,
2: thanks. Well, it's an you know it's an oldie but goodie. I made it and it was released in twenty ten, which means I started working working on it in probably two thousand seven. Because most of my projects take film projects typically for me, I found take at least three years. Which knowing that now scares me from ever making a film again. <laughs> Um. <laughs> <laughs> which is probably why I don't want to make the Japanese film where I'm like, oh, maybe it's not a film, you know, because <laughs> it sounds like such a big commitment. But nonetheless, so, you know, that movie, it, it came from a different place, but it transformed into the movie that it needed to be. And I love the movie that it is. And that's not to say I won't return to, like, the family issues and all of that in some other project later on down the line. So... As I get older, I try to be more and more open to the universe, as touchy-feely as that sounds. Um, But I ultimately think that is part of maybe aging and wisdom, um, even if you're not taking it in a spiritual way, but just in in a literal way of like, as you learn to not judge the world in binaries and in black and white as you get older, I think you also learn that you can't plan everything and you can't predict the future and you can't control um, everything you'd like to control. So it's a way of letting go.
0: Yeah, and I think I was having a diff- totally different conversation with one of my friends today, actually one of our random guests, Andreas, who was popped into the, the podcast one episode in the background. Um, but yeah, we were sort of talking about job things and stuff like that. and there's this thing that happens that I don't know, I just realized and maybe I think it's from our backgrounds, which in a lot of ways are really similar. We're all sort of southern ladies and I don't know there's like it felt like there there's a lot of times I'm making a decision about what I'm gonna do, usually not creatively as much as professionally, but it feels like it's coming from this place of scarcity like, I'm never going to have this chance again. I have to take this chance. And there's just so much pressure that comes with that. And if you feel now that, like, I'm a bit older or whatever, you can recognize yourself doing that. And it's sort of complex because on one hand... Uh, on one hand it's more likely that maybe it is the last time that that opportunity is going to come up because you are getting a bit older and on the other hand that's still a bad way to make a decision like it doesn't mean it's good it's just like i have to seize everything right now you know it was slightly different than what you're saying but i still think you know it's like this sort of anxiety driven way that you look at things or you have to hold on to them or whatever as opposed to like feeling free enough in yourself
2: that you let things go Yeah, it sounds like your kind of YOLO moment. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not that I think of you as a YOLO person, but, you know. But, yeah, I mean, it's a balance between, like, accepting where you are and also recognizing this is your one chance on this planet, and as far as we know, and how are you going to make the the most of it? And, yeah, so it's like that – I think it's the way all Zen principles have those kinds of paradoxes in them. Like it's the being in the moment without holding on to the moment itself. One of the things that actually helped me with my divorce, because now I just want to take the mood down a little bit. (laughs) No more laughing. the (laughs) the, The concept of being sad without feeling sad to me is is kind of related it's a little tangential but kind of related to what you're talking about it's about being able to hold this thing and embrace what's happening to you without letting it overtake and overwhelm you and honestly i think divorce has taught me a lot about how to live my life because when i got married i really thought that was it i was never going to marry again and that would be my life that would be this defining characteristic of the rest of my time here and no one's more surprised than me to be divorced. <laughs> uh, it's a strange feeling. And yet, I mean, I initiated my divorce. So on one level, I should not be surprised. <laughs> but it's this thing that that came to happen that's taught me a lot about not making those predictions and not holding on to outcomes and also judging a lot less because I thought I would never be divorced. I never wanted to be divorced. I experienced that. Throughout my childhood, uh, through my parents' multiple marriages and really judged in some ways that I now see were pretty unfair, those decisions. So it's made me a better person, even if it's a strange feeling to be like a 30-something divorcee. I don't know. I always imagine divorce people as old. (laughs) Uh, I think that may just be a cultural stereotype that we have.
1: Yeah. But I I think, though like what, what's helpful about it is that, I mean, that's not the only way in which life is unpredictable, right? I mean, really it's unpredictable all the time. And I think creative life is maybe in some ways even more unpredictable and, or at least we, we expect it to be unpredictable if that's not a bit of an oxymoron. And so maybe that's a good question for you is how do you manage I know you said you've listened to some of our previous episodes, but this is like a big, (laughs) this is a big issue with me is, is the unpredictability because I also my day job is a freelance job. And so how to manage the complete lack of control in in my entire life. And right now I tend to manage it by trying to control things that, you know, I think I can like my kids, but that's not.
2: That's not really healthy
1: for anybody or possible. But yeah, so how do you how do you handle how do you handle just unpredictability in general, especially as a creative person?
2: Well, one thing I assume from the get go with any project is no one cares about it except for me, um, and no one may ever watch it. And I do that not as, like, a low self-esteem thing, which is what it sounds like, but it's kind of just, like, setting my expectations really low. Because, of course, I have, like, hopes and dreams that it's going to be, you know, this huge thing that everyone in the world is going to have their life touched by it. I mean, who doesn't want that?
1: (laughs) Right, Right, the daydreams.
2: Yeah, if you have a creative spark, it's usually, you know, because you – You want to put something out in the world that's going to make an impact, or at least that's where my drive comes from. It comes from this desire to change the world in as sincere a way as that kind of tired phrase can be. But I assume from the get-go that it's not, that it's this tiny blip in the ocean and no one may notice, but it may eventually reach the right people. Um, And I found that's kind of true with my projects uh, on the whole, is that eventually I do hear back from just individuals, um, and usually those emails or Facebook comments or whatever are far more valuable than even the bigger awards or things that I might have gotten for the project. Ultimately, it's those small connections that help me understand the power of the work and why I made the work to begin with. So I set my expectations low. The other thing is something I've stolen from the architect Christopher Alexander, who is kind of a fascinating architect. He's really a philosopher in an architect's clothing and has written this like nine-volume treatise on the meaning of life, but it's all about (laughs) architecture. (laughs) It's really beautiful. Um, But he uh, would say, uh, make something that pleases you. And I think that's what I'm aiming for with each project is no one else may like it. All the critics may look it over, you know, the festivals may pass. It's not going to become a New York times bestseller, but it pleased me. And I enjoyed making it those enjoy is like a tricky word with creativity because sometimes it's really painful, (laughs) but it was fulfilling to make it maybe, (laughs) you know, like it, it, um, it was cathartic. It was, I try not to make therapy work, but you know, it pleases you is a little bit easier, you know, to kind of, um, put it that way because I can be pleased by all kinds of emotions and work and time so I definitely aim for that as one of my goals when I'm doing a project and sometimes if I can't get things going with a project then I'll just do something else that pleases me and then I'm maybe like not really good at like uh, drawing like I've never had a real drawing class and I'm actually pretty bad at it but um, but uh, but sometimes I just sit down and do it because I think no one has to see it and I'm going to have fun. And that's been a really hard lesson for me is to do things that I'm not great at. And I think some of that is because I've always been an overachiever and I've always been really good at my job. And my job before my job was like school and I was great at school. <laughs> but creativity usually means getting into your an area where you are uncomfortable and where you can fail. And so it's important for me to do things that I'm really bad at, uh, like drawing and to be happy about that and to be fine with it and to, um, to kind of get used to that. So that's something I'm kind of actively working on right now is um, failure without repercussions.
0: Yeah. I think, um, I think all of those things are really good ways to like practice, especially, especially as you say, you know, in the incubating phase where you need to, I think, touch all the different types of creativity like you need to get back to being comfortable with being bad at things in order to kind of try things out and just to feel that bravery and the uh, lack of pressure that you get one of the things I wanted to talk to you about and this is I warned you obviously but like ever since I was with you in one of uh, your house I think in the country that you had and I think we were sitting in front of your computer I don't know what um I stayed over I think that time with you and uh, and you were just talking about all your different things that you had, and you were like, look, even if... And I think I was like, oh, I want to write, but I am too lazy, but I didn't say that I was like, oh, I'm busy or whatever. You're like, even if you don't do very much, then you just touch your work every day um, when you're actually doing a project. So obviously, you're in the incubation stage, something starts to hatch, and then you kind of get into your project. Is that still how you think, or has your thinking changed on that? Because I'm also conscious that was probably like... I don't know, eight years ago, you know, I'm just curious about that because that has stuck with me a lot. So even days when I'm thinking like I'm definitely not writing, I just open up the document and kind of read a little bit of it.
2: Yeah. When I made that comment, it was actually when I was raising chickens. So that's where all these incubation <laughs> metaphors come from. And you had goats. You had a lot of life, and livestock. And had goats. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, that was a creative activity too, you know, like I had to learn how to- care for those animals and do weird things like how to see if your chicken has become impacted and you know like (laughs) learning a lot more about chicken anatomy than I ever wanted to learn uh but that was fun research you know maybe the process itself was not so fun but um so yes that was a principle that I have held on to for a really long time and I think it it came in part because I was doing producing and I was working on other people's projects and they always seemed to take precedence over my own and that was frustrating and it felt a little bit crippling in my own creative life and around the time I made that comment to you I was starting to begin work on a film project that I was going to direct and I think that was in part why I told you that because it was very slow going at first. So some days touching my project meant I sent an email or I looked up a person whom I might email in a subsequent day. You know, sometimes touching it was a really small piece of the puzzle because my life was consumed with being in library school and doing my day job teaching film at Virginia Tech and producing other people's projects. So the space in my life that could be taken up by my own projects was so very small But even if it was small, it was still going to be sacred. And that was a way to kind of make it sacred for myself. Um, And I've been excited to hear you repeat that because it's kind of like you're giving me the advice that I need now that I gave to you. Because I've been a little bit consumed by all the change in my life. I just moved to New York City. I started a new job. Uh, And I moved to New York from Tennessee, no less. So, little bit of a transition so I'm trying to get back into a creative groove of my own and to uh figure out what my next project is going to be because I kind of started a project that I thought was going to be one thing again haha I started something that I (laughs) thought was going to be a podcast believe it or not but it's not going to be a podcast and now I'm kind of transforming that into a multimedia article um so it's like semi creative but it's not nearly as like sexy as my film projects. So when people run into me they're always like what film are you working on now? And I don't know, I I definitely know I'm having some ego issues because I get intimidated when people ask me that and I'm like, "Oh, I'm not working on any films right now." And that shouldn't feel any less than because I've always been a transdisciplinary person and a, a, a person with a lot of creative outlets. But I think um, I became so defined by by being in the film world that I'm having to to do a lot of uh, identity forging right now. And some of that comes with this big move and with this big job and with being a, a fairly recent divorcee. So like all of this is, is is all wrapped up into this creative being that I am and that's in a point of transition So I was happy to hear you say that because I definitely need to be touching my projects every day and I have a few things I'm dabbling with and we'll see we'll see where they go but there is a very cool tool for touching your projects every day that I got off of like a Kickstarter campaign that I wanted to tell you guys about um, a while back. I'm going to try to show it to you on my camera but It's this little cool wooden box. And so I heard about this because I belong to this thing called uh, Fractured Atlas, which is a it's a cool nonprofit organization for artists. So if you want to get like group health insurance rates as a self-employed person or whatever, like they do that. They you can buy insurance for like film shoots and volunteers. And I was using it for that kind of stuff. Um, they also do fiscal sponsorship where you can like get a fiscal umbrella if you want to raise money for a nonprofit, like cause or project that you're working on, but you don't want to become a big nonprofit and have lots of paperwork every year. Anyway, so Fractured Atlas is a pretty cool resource, but one of their employees dreamed up this thing. It's called the make time clock. And so it has like a little led light for every day of the week And when you push it, it starts to flash and it flashes for 15 minutes so that you're spending like at least 15 minutes on your project. And then after you've done it, it glows steady. And so it's supposed to help you keep track each week of like, did you touch your project every day? Which, when I found this, I was like, "Someone stole my idea and made it into a thing." Um, I really like, that. but I thought, it, yeah, yeah, I thought it was pretty cool because someone like made a, a physical thing that does the kind of thing that I had been men- mentally doing. So I had to get one, of course, yeah. uh, when I when I saw their Kickstarter campaign. Um, but yeah, it's the kind of. It's, it's definitely a principle that I return to again and again, and I'm glad it's been helpful for you. That's exciting.
0: I think it's interesting because when I first heard it, it sounded so uh, aspirational. And like, I don't know why. As far as I remember, I was basically like, I had a weird life situation, but... Um, I think I was, like, stranded in the U.S. waiting to get back to the U.K. on my visa or something like that. It was horrible. But, I mean, what was I doing? I was literally tanning in the afternoon for multiple hours. And, okay, I was really tired because I was working U.K. hours but in the U.S., so, at, like, 4 a.m. until something. Um, but I literally did nothing all afternoon. Um, and I, it's still, when you said that, I was like, that sounds insane. Um, and then – but now, like, it sounds totally – Perfect. Like, it's obvious that that would be what you would do if you were actually serious about writing something or doing any other creative project. Like, you do need to stay in that mental space um, somehow. So I just think it's so funny how – and I think some of our listeners are people who are, like, starting to write. And probably for them as well, it sounds, yeah, really aspirational or it sounds like something they couldn't possibly achieve. And I think, you know, that clock or anything else where you can set yourself, like, 5 minutes or 10 or 15 really does make a really big difference in your kind of long-term creative growth.
2: Yeah, I mean ultimately I I made a project in those tiny moments and it was slow, it was slower than I would have liked, but it did ramp up after a time. You know, like those smaller moments got bigger as I felt a little bit more momentum. Yeah. But I think it's kind of like starting an exercise program, like, you know, a couch to 5K or something like that, you know, which I've done. And, of course, like now I need to, like, do again because I'm a lapsed runner. <laughs> but, you know, these <laughs> these things in life that are hard, uh, It's the the hardest part is getting started, you know. And um, because of our own self-doubt and procrastination and laziness and... All of these things that I think many creative people struggle with and just as humans we struggle with, you know, like it's so much easier to binge watch Netflix than it is to do one thing for your project. (laughs) Yeah. That's always going to be easier and you have to fight that battle every day. And some days you just aren't up to it. And I mean, and that's also okay because I have definitely not done it every day or I would be probably a lot more successful than I am (laughs) Um, but you know what that's also okay and that's I think part of that self-acceptance part because for me as a perfectionist as an overachiever like I've got to really my I think my biggest strides are in like accepting that and in accepting that like my ambition is so large that I may not achieve those things ultimately that's kind of what I'm dealing with, and and other people's struggles may be like that, or they may be completely different. It may be having the having the dream in the first place, being able to think that big. Mm-hmm. So whatever you're wherever you're frozen, you know, either in you know the the achievement phase or the dreaming phase or the doing phase or all of the above, like it's fine. It's a great place to start. Worst case scenario is nothing happens, which is where you are right now.
0: Yeah. Well, and anyway, something is happening because it's happening in you, right? That's the other thing. Right.
2: Yeah. You're making the thing that pleases you. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: Um, So kind of back to your motto there. Speaking of building up tiny chunks of time, uh, you also work full time, as we've discussed. And so how, like, first of all, I guess we ask everybody this, and, um, but, well, I have two questions. So, first question is like, what do you think that you kind of get from your day job and and what do you get from that experience? And also, obviously, like the obvious question is, if you could quit your day job, would you like, would you work on your creative project full time?
2: Oh, man. OK, those are super fun questions. So. <laughs> <laughs> So what do I get out of my day job? Well, one is I get a routine. I like have to get up and I have to get dressed and I have to go somewhere. And like the structure of that makes me more productive than when I was actually teaching and I had more control. Now that I'm a 12 month faculty member, you know, I have to be in the office and I think I'm actually a little bit more productive as scary and as disappointing as that is to myself (laughs) (laughs) to say but like the fact that I have to kind of like get up and, and work for the man as it were makes me uh think more highly of my own time that I have and also sometimes what I do with work as well is I um I, I block off my mornings. I really hate to have meetings in the morning. So I really try to have meetings in the afternoon because I'm usually useless in the afternoon in terms of writing and creativity. I'm just kind of a zombie because I don't drink coffee that late. And I just really want to go home. But that's a great time to have meetings because <laughs> you want them to end really quickly. You'll be really productive. So I do t- tasks like that or like mindless tasks. Anything that's like... A little bit like less taxing I save it for the afternoon and I keep the mornings as a little bit more sacred time and if I'm on a deadline like I'll just block off my calendar weeks in advance to have mornings clear so that I'll go in and do the creative hard stuff first so then I can feel good the rest of the day like oh I did the thing even if it was just an hour you know or a half hour but like I carved out the time, and I'm also doing the hard thing first uh, because I'm a total, like, pleasure-seeking person. So, (laughs) you know, I want to get that out of the way. So work gives me that for sure. The other thing is part of my job is helping people with their creative hopes and dreams and goals and projects. So on the downside, that could be completely draining, similar to my film, Producing Career. But it being in academia, it's really not because – the biggest difference is my job is to help get them started, but I don't have to hold their hand the whole way. I get to fledge them really early. <laughs> so they meet with me, I talk about it, and I'm like, yeah, you have all this work to do. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> Call <laughs> God, me when you're done. Skirt. Exactly. Like, keep me posted. So um That's kind of awesome. Like, I I don't have the same, you know, like, long-term commitment with most projects. Like There are a few that I'll get roped into that are a bigger part of my job. And for those, I have a lot of responsibility. But as a consultant, which is basically what I do, it's super fun. I get to hear about all these wild projects people are working on. The subjects vary crazily. You know, like, I've got somebody, like, collecting... Botany samples and putting them into a database, you know, and I've got somebody else who is trying to get students to look at New York and Buenos Aires and kind of look at the graffiti culture and socio- economic issues that are maybe like driving these creative expressions or you know so I get to kind of every day explore somebody else's creative project and get inspired by it which is sometimes a good kick in the pants also I get to help them identify tools to help them do the work so I learn about all these crazy productivity tools or publishing tools and lots and lots of like website building uh, tools because almost all the projects I'm helping with are what we call academia, digital scholarship, which is meaningless to most other people, but it really just means multimedia publications or interactive websites or data visualizations or really cool maps and uh, anything that's like digital and cool. And you might see like in a Washington Post or New York Times feature, like I'm helping people build that stuff. Um, So I've learned a ton of skills in doing the work. And so if I really want to learn a skill like, say, podcasting, then I just decide I'm going to teach a workshop on it, and then I have to learn all about it. And that fits into part of my job. So my job can in many ways feed my creative life in that way because I'm learning things I want to learn, and I have motivation and deadlines to do things that will feed my projects. And sometimes I get to travel for free to cool places to learn these things, so like for the past two summers, I've gone to um, Victoria, British Columbia, and gotten to see some whales while I'm learning about data visualization. So <laughs>
0: seems seems totally related, yeah,
2: right? Like so, that's like really cool. So yeah, and also being in an academic. Workplace, I have access to a lot of equipment and expertise that helps me push my projects forward too. So, the networks I'm forging help the people that I'm helping as part of my job, but they also help me. So, on the one hand, I have an amazing job for the creative life that I want to lead, and yet I have like reasonable vacation and working hours and healthcare and stability and retirement and all that good stuff. So, all of that said, Um, if I could quit my day job, would I? Hell yes. Um, (laughs) if I could be a full-time creative, um, yes, I totally would. I would, like, have so many businesses and creative projects. It would be, like, Martha Stewart plus Oprah plus Kenneth Paltrow, like, all all the things. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I have ideas all the time about, businesses and things um I know you do too Olivia and I I don't know about you Megan but I'm seeing you nod your head so uh, (laughs) yeah I'm, I'm imagining that you do too yeah so like yeah I could run an empire um if I did if I was independently wealthy and didn't need my day job but um but you know this is this is the hand I've been dealt uh so and I think for you know a country girl with a mom who got pregnant and dropped out of high school, i done pretty good, <laughs> you know? <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and so some, sometimes I just have to remind myself that, you know, that like I, I have such a high bar for myself and I have all this ambition and, um, but I had to overcome, I had to come a long way to get to where I'm at. And maybe it's not the, the mountaintop, the summit that I have dreamed of, but Hey, it's still, it's still a lot further than the place I always wanted to escape as I was growing up.
1: Yeah. It's not over yet. Yeah. yeah.
2: No, and exactly. Really yeah, gone, I know I'm talking like I'm 80 or <laughs> yeah. something. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> maybe it's in my heart. I feel 80. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, actually <laughs>
0: looking back on her life, she's actually 80 years old. <laughs> yeah. But well, you've done a lot. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Like it feels well, so right. I've, mm-hmm. I've had a
2: few careers, you yeah. know, like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm definitely like, I fit the millennial stereotype in that way uh, in that you know I've already had a few different careers I've um, I was also married to someone who was 10 years older than me, which made me always feel like my career was behind. So that like pushed me really hard. Um, and I have friends of all ages, like one of my best friends just turned 80 this month. So I've been thinking a lot about being 80. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I also read a great brain pickings article this morning about how all, all these 80 year olds have all these great insights at that age, like Oliver Sacks and Ursula uh, Le Guin and like, mm-hmm. anyway, so I've been I've been thinking about those qua what are they quatrogenarians I don't even know what we call that but there's some fancy word octogenarians, octogenarians. Yeah. yeah okay um so yeah thinking about them so and I've always thought I'm like an old lady in a young lady's body and it just becomes progressively like they start to line up more and more as I get older so
1: we should all tap to, our tap our inner octogenarians I think that's
2: yeah but I also just good, can't like, wait life to see it yeah, no, yeah. I'm excited for, like, the fashion freedom of being yes, 80. imagine. Because I'm just, I'm going to be weird, and I can't wait <laughs> to be that weird. Like, and to give zero about it. Like, that's, that's really my goal with aging is, like, because right now I still feel like, okay, I still need to, like, woo someone, and, <laughs> you know, I have to care a little bit for the time being. I mean, I still, you know, I'm not trying to hold myself back too much, but, but I can see a moment. In that future where it's like, oh, yeah, like the I'm going to get Iris
1: Apple moment.
2: Exactly. Exactly. I'm going to get the crazy glasses and the bright red lipstick and it's going to happen.
0: I think for me, 40 is the new 80. Just watch.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's almost here. So, right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I look forward
2: to that with. Huge anticipation and <laughs> want to join you in that endeavor. Mostly, I think it's I've always wanted to wear, like, a swimsuit and those crazy, like, floral bathing caps, mm-hmm. you know? And yes. I feel like that's, like, an 80-year-old baby thing. So I really want – that's the moment that I'm, yeah. I'm working on. And if you,
1: if you do it too young, though, you're just hipster, yeah. and so it's just right.
2: not – Right, and they kind of stole that from us. I'm a little – yeah, I'm a little upset with the hipsters for that because, like... Us? You mean the 80-year-olds? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, exactly. The inner 80-year-olds because with their, you know, like, granny chic, they've really taken something away from those of us who actually just identify as older people, so... <laughs>
1: I'm ready for them to step well,
2: off our territory. This is my so, favorite tangent we've ever gone on on this podcast. <laughs> I agree. But but
1: no, like here here I come with my like indexer brain to like bring it all back around to, you know, this is my see also cross reference, I guess. Um so that makes me think though, like one of the things that I personally struggle with is I mean, I have done a whole lot of things in like career and family and things in the last 15 years, but at the same time um, I really identify with your comment about your ambition being so large and not being there. And I feel like, well, Olivia had to just finally just ban me from reading to find out how old an author is when I read their books, <laughs> because I get really depressed. And I'm just like, I am, you know, 36, I'll be 37 this year. And yeah, you know, I'm still working on my first novel, and it's not been published. And like, that's sort of the the other end of the the age thing is is rather than embracing your any inner 80 year old, it's like, Oh my gosh, how am I so old and I haven't even done anything yet? And is that something that you struggle with and or not? And like how does how does that ring for you?
2: Yes. <laughs> yes, it does it for me. So one thing I'm really compelled to chat to you right now, which is probably totally inappropriate, but I'm going to I'm going to do it anyway. It's this amazing visualization called "Who old are you?" and it shows it like you enter your age and then it shows you where you are in this really cool interactive visualization in terms of, like, where other people were at the height of their genius, like Michelangelo or... Oh, that sounds annoying. Don't send me that. Yeah. <laughs> I that. So don't look at it. Don't look at what I just sent you. But I kind of sh- sometimes show this to people as, like, showing them what cool, cool viz is all about. So, yeah, sorry. Um, but I just, I can't help myself. So... I've taken us a, afoul, though, again. So what, um,
1: <laughs> but your
2: question was more, was it about, like, comparisons? Was it more about? Yeah, like, yeah, comparing these things. So, yeah, so there's this amazing toolkit, though, that is actually helpful that I will tell you about <laughs> that counteracts the thing I just sent you about. Um, <laughs> so I won't give it to you without the antidote. So here's the antidote. It's called The Artist Survival Guide by Carrie Smith. It's free. It's like a PDF online, and I will totally put this in my bibliography of like cool things. But it's uh, Carrie Smith is this now pretty successful illustrator, but she made this a long time ago, and it's all about how to like stop comparing and keep your spirits up, and um, it's pretty great. It's and it's printable, and you can just keep these cards on your desk. And I actually. Yeah, I actually have them on my desk. It says, for the really bad days, for the days when you want to quit, when you feel like everything you do is shit, when you feel your self-esteem plummet, when you decide you would rather wait tables for a living, when you start to think you will never make a living making art, when you're working on something you feel like you hate more than you've ever hated anything in your life. (laughs) I mean, it just kind of goes on. So when you want to lie in bed for a month and eat chips, like, it's great. So, and it has all these great things in it. Like, one of them is, like, It's these little things you cut out to figure out like what to do when you're stuck and you put them in a hat and you pull one out and you just do what's in it. Uh, There's one on handling rejection. Uh, There's some on like support system and accomplishments. Uh, There's one on procrastination. Uh, My personal favorite, uh, I have a few favorites in here. One is the I quit card, which is like where you go look at the classifieds and see what other jobs you'd rather do, which means (laughs) none of them. So it like convinces you to get back to work. Um, one is, uh, oh, how to feel 10 ways to feel terrible, miserable as an artist. And number one, constantly compare yourself to other artists. So that's immediately what I thought of Megan, when you made your comments. So like, these are the, like the 10 things you need to stop doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then. And then there's an awesome one in here, which is create your own damn award. I've, I've come to this one m- many times, which is like <laughs> a way to give yourself the award you always wanted. Um, anyway, so all of these cards are, are pretty genius. And it's it's uh, a tool that I've come back to many a time when I'm going down that rabbit hole that you're talking about of like looking at people's ages and looking up who they are and I am just as guilty especially now that um I'm on Instagram which I thought was going to be healthier than Facebook and now I'm like ooh, mm. I think it's worse <laughs> yeah you know cause yeah I'm I'm rarely on Facebook like I really only go on because of people like Olivia who I've known forever and I want to see her photos and like what she's up to but like I I have pared down my Facebook feed to like you know it's like five people who are funny <laughs> and cool and like I don't follow anybody else. And then um, Instagram, too. So I have like Instagram where I accept everyone, which is my dog's Instagram. And I just post to that. I like try not to look at the feed at all. And then on the feed that I actually look at, it's like 10 people and it's uh, or it's inspirational. So and I felt like that's for my mental health because I'm a total comparer and it's horrible. It's terrible.
1: Yeah. We have to stop it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I have to say I haven't been doing it lately, but it has been like the subject of our conversations on here lately, so... Thought I bring it up but I've been really good this week you'd be proud of me
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think I mean like you just can't honestly like the boat has sailed I'm like not I'm never gonna be like the most remarkable youngest author right like it's
1: yeah I mean clearly we're never gonna be on any 30 under 30 list I'm not gonna be a 24 year old published author it's too late you're right
0: but also we've had other things like yeah so Megan has this new motto which is like she's not Wonder Woman but also Wonder Woman is not her and so it's like those people people haven't had our life and so you know like what's the point of really comparing you know
2: yeah no I I think that's really important and I think one of the things that has helped me most mature in my acceptance of where I'm at is actually having a dog um so I've had a dog for are you going to show us your dog, Megan? <laughs> I am. Oh, She's awesome. Yeah, I may have to go get mine in a minute because um, I love to show her off. But <laughs> I got this dog when I was in a really dark place and I was really struggling in every way you can struggle. And my creative life was definitely like surprisingly, actually, my creative life on the outside looked really awesome. I had a film that was, like, tearing it up. New York Times review, critics pick. It was doing amazing. And I had another film, Waiting in the Gates, uh, that was about to be released. So, like, on paper, to everyone I knew, I looked very successful, And I'm really good at that, like looking successful on the outside, as I think most people on social media are. Um, But I wasn't even doing that in a social media way. It was just like my life looked really successful Um, and everything that was really important in terms of, you know, relationships and feeling good and being happy and or not even happy cuz happy is such a complicated word but being content and and feeling like i had enough like i none of that was there and and i was definitely struggling in a deep depression and i decided to get a dog, which my partner at the time thought was a horrible idea. And he, uh, I think like when I, I showed him this dog, he uh, was kind of like, uh, you know, like, I think you may be making a big mistake. You know, like I feel like he was almost trying to talk me out of it because I fostered this dog for a few months before I officially adopted her. But I fell in love with this dog in a way that I did not know you could fall in love with a pet. I had tons of pets growing up. I've had cats as an adult. I have raised goats and chickens and I have loved these animals. But with this dog, it has been a whole nother story. And it sounds a little crazy. And I recognize the crazy that is being <laughs> spoken by this dog has changed my life. And, and she's taught me a lot of things. And I think some of it was because of the moment she came into my life, like being in such a a dark place and then meeting this being who is completely zen like she lives her life in the moment every single day same day like every day is is a new day to her and every minute is a new minute and they you know you can read about this all day long in a book or you know you can listen to uh, all the, you know, Buddhist monk podcasts you want because I've listened to them <laughs> and it doesn't teach you. <laughs> it doesn't teach you that principle in the same way until you like see someone do it and you're like, oh, shit, like you're, you're the most Zen being I've ever met. Like you're happy because I'm near you. You know, you're happy because you're being touched. You're sad because I'm not with you. Oh, now you're happy. You know, like it it just and no holding on to those memories, though she does dream sometimes. And I wonder if she's having memories because I hear her, you know, talk in her dreams. And so maybe that's there. But in her waking life, like she is a Zen Buddhist master and I've learned a ton from her. And that has been hugely therapeutic for me as an individual, but also in my creative life and in in some ways uh, tempering that ambition because the best thing about this dog besides who she is, is that I did nothing to deserve her or to earn her love and affection. It was, it it was given. And this makes me start to sound like a very evangelical Christian type person, which (laughs) I'm not, but like, it's this kind of grace, you know, that you're given from animals sometimes you know you were you were given something with an expectation of very little if anything in return and that's very incomprehensible for humans who are so transactional or especially people who live in at least my contemporary modern world which is highly transactional and I feel like in New York everybody wants something for their time and everybody you know uh, are you gonna waste their time are you what do you have to offer them in return? And and as someone who was just raised with a good healthy sense of Catholic guilt, oh, am I going to owe this person something? <laughs> and who has a lot of Jewish friends who also teach me a lot about guilt, you know? So this this dog doesn't want anything in return, and so that's really great for a creative to have. So whether you find it through your dog or you find it through yoga or you find it through meditation or wherever you're finding that peace of being enough and not having to earn enough. It's not because I've accomplished X, Y, or Z or because I have been successful that I deserve this uh, love and appreciation. It's just, it's automatic. Um, some people find that in religion and religion, maybe it was because I was raised Catholic, has never felt that way to me. <laughs> it felt like more like a, I don't know, some kind of like a, uh, ledger you know yeah the, it also it, feels it's... transactional yeah. yeah 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 to me the way I was introduced to, to religion so for me uh my new like dogma as it were my like, uh, <laughs> good one oh God, I love that librarian pun um <laughs> is is that I've I've learned about a, a non-transactional kind of of love and and ultimately I think that's what religion's trying to get at but just for me personally kind of failed to do
0: yeah and I'm going to put in a word for cats here um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no I also like dogs but I think that it's that I think for me as well also because I adopted my cats off the street so there's a lot of health care that goes along with us um, but like uh, also it's sort of the other side of that as well is that you're enough but also like you're sustaining them you know or that you're giving like also like they're also enough like whatever I can't just be like oh I'm annoyed at you and I don't want to take you to the vet or you know like I can't be bothered to do a really elaborate poop collection uh <laughs> or whatever you know <laughs> and like label it in stupid bags like that's my life now um but there you know there's an the analogy to the creative work as well like once you set out on it like you're enough they're enough but also like there's a lot of weird things that come along with it which I think are all go together I don't know
2: and there's no embarrassment, yeah. right? Or shame
0: that goes with that.
2: Right. And it's different than kids too because, you know, like with kids, you have hopes and dreams and ambitions about them and their lives. Yeah. And, you know, they are full-fledged humans with hopes and dreams. You know, so like I feel like human interaction is just so much different because I know a lot of people find like that joy and hope and all these wonderful things in childhood. Um, but I, I I, do not think these are two um, equivocal things. You know, like I, I do think there is something like and this is why people get so attached to their pets, you know, is is because they have this power to kind of transcend all of our humanness mm-hmm. and yet also show us something very human at the same time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I'll say with kids, too, one of the things that I think is really cool is one of the things that I get out of them that, like, you know, I don't get out of my dog, which is it's totally different and they're both wonderful or they're all three run of full. I have two kids is you can't really take all that much credit for your kids because like you said, they have their own hopes and dreams and ambitions. And if you're, well, I think that I'm doing it right because this is the choice that I'm making, but, but like you can't take away or replace their hopes and dreams with your own, right? Like you have to learn how to let all of that go and let them do what they're going to do. And you realize like really, really early on that, their personalities are what they're born with. And, you know, people can can come up to you and say, oh, your children are so well-behaved, or they're so cute, or they're so smart, or they're so whatever, but, like, you don't really have much to do with it. I mean, you do your best to take what they have and, like, help them use those tools in a positive, like, world-changing way, but at the end of the day, like, they have free will and it's their choice. So that's kind of a cool thing, but you're right. Like with an with a pet, they're constantly forever. My dog is 15 and they're dependent on you forever. Like she will never be able to open the back door by herself and <laughs> let herself out, right? Like she doesn't have thumbs. She can't unscrew the lid on her food dish and feed herself when she's hungry. My kids are now almost 8 and almost 5 and like they're old enough to get a snack if they need, I mean, they still don't, but like they could, right? And eventually they're going to be old enough to do laundry and to fix meals and grow up and leave and do their own thing. And like an animal is never like, she's never going to be able to do that. Like she is dependent on me a hundred percent always. So that's just another, another thing I think that supports what you were saying about that. Like, it's a very special, it's a special thing to have this, this creature who forgives you no matter what for not taking her for a walk today because it's raining. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? they're very
2: forgiving. It's, yeah. it's,
1: it's humbling. She'll not end up in therapy in 20 years <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for it. There's for whatever choices too. I make, like there are no... <laughs> long-term repercussions that could go on for generations right you know yeah um, i always tell people
2: um you don't have to put them through college and they're not going to go to jail so like, yeah
1: yeah
0: two
2: two pros <laughs> to pets you know Yep, yeah
0: awesome i've like a billion more questions but probably we're running low on time i have one more question which is more serious sorry away from dogs uh but not unrelated <laughs> maybe which is that like a lot of What I really like about the work of yours that I've seen, um, and so you have the Story of the Stuff website project, and you have the films that we've talked about. Maybe you will be online, one of them. But what I really like is that you take – like your personal emotion and your personal experience. But you're not, as you said, it's not like therapy art or whatever. You sort of put it, you try to understand it, and you use your art to go into it deeper in sometimes ways that are actually pretty painful, I'm sure, for you. Uh, So I guess to sum up about story of the stuff really quickly, um, it comes out of the suffering and the difficulty that you had after the shooting at Virginia Tech, uh, which you personally sort of experienced, but go into that and kind of try to understand that more um, and then also tell a bigger story about kind of our world and what's happening. Um, so I really, what I think is really great about the art that you put is is that kind of combination of the emotional impact, but also not losing sight of the bigger picture and not using it as like your personal, like you do your own personal work um, and you bring that. And I think a lot of like creativity in general does end up doing that sort of thing. Um, But I guess if you could talk a little bit more about how you, your philosophy on, on that and how you go into that and how do you walk that really difficult balance?
2: I, as you were speaking, I was thinking about this Leonard Cohen lyric that I was looking up so I didn't misquote it, which is, there is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And again, he lived till his 80s. So getting back to our octogenarian (laughs) conversation of earlier, but That lyric, as many lyrics do, sums up uh, a belief that I have about our own suffering and, and human experience, which is it's in many ways for creatives. That's where the source of our creative energy and power and agency comes from. It comes from those painful moments. At least that's been true for me, though I'm trying now to also tap into those joyful moments. But I think my personality, I'm like more of a Kermit the Frog kind of person where I'm always like <laughs> happy and sad or this like these two emotions separated by a very fine line for me and they easily cross over. So it's kind of on the on the cusp of those two is when I feel like most happy and most sad. It's like they're they're just touching each other. So for my film work, I guess I'm drawing upon that that same well of experience, which is grief and joy and they are all mixed up in in my work and so with the story of the stuff it's very much a a documentary about grief and suffering and pain but it's also about joy and beauty and human connectedness and so it is it is a film that that straddles that line and I hope hopefully for viewers is more hopeful and positive and affirmative and an affirmation of the human spirit than it is the painful place that it sprung from so in my work it usually starts with pain and then I try to find the humor and the joy in the pain that co-dwells with it. Because I don't want to eschew those negative emotions. And I think as Americans, especially like we have a culture where in some ways, the goal, it seems for many people is to get rid of those emotions, or to deny them or to to hide them instead of embracing them as part of what makes being human wonderful and beautiful is that we can feel pain and suffering and sadness. The fact that you can grieve means that you can love. So I, I'm all about feeling all of the emotions and welcoming them all as inhabitants of my life one of my favorite meditations on the Buddhify app i am especially a big fan of the can't sleep <laughs> set of meditations but one of them is where you you basically greet every emotion that comes into your mind so i there's many nights where i'm like hello grief oh hello regret come on in You know, nice to see you again, embarrassment. I know we're old friends, you know, and you just, you kind of welcome them all in. And I don't know, for me, like, I think that was the the meditation that actually helped me, A, not be intimidated by meditating and B, go, oh, I'm meditating. Like, I figured it out. Like, I know how to meditate now because I'm not good at Clearing my head because I have all these ideas and my brain never shuts off. And so I can't be the, you know, the Zen yoga teacher person. But I can say hello to everything that that comes into my mind and be okay with it. Because I know them. We're old friends. Every day I sit down at my desk, they all come on out to play. <laughs> so so that kind of meditation and like greeting them and not, I mean, that's that's really something that I, I think, again, like divorce taught me is like I to sit with emotion and to, to feel it like my one of the things my therapist said to me about feelings. She was like, Ashley, their feelings, they go away. You don't have to act on them. You just have to sit with them. And I hadn't, I mean, it sounds like a really basic statement, all of that. But to me, the understanding of that was really profound because I thought emotions meant I had to act on them. It meant I had to do something. It was an imperative. It was kind of a, a command to then like make that emotion go away or do something to make it feel better or go make someone else feel better or your life choices need to be dictated by these things. And instead, it's like, no, I can just kind of make rational choices and emotion can be this other thing that I just do sometimes to kind of do emotion if that makes sense because I'm a pretty much a feeler so this was was really interesting for me to like separate those out instead of thinking of them as intertwined and so with the the work and these these painful topics I'm I've learned to just welcome those emotions in at the end of the story of the stuff like the conclusion of that Web documentary is actually an interview. So it's kind of like a podcast. It's a a phone interview with a convicted felon, someone who's in, in prison serving three consecutive life sentences for homicide. And I chose to interview this person because they had actually sent a sympathy card to Virginia Tech. And I had remembered their card. It had this beautiful kind of hand drawing. And I thought that was so strange, right? Like, why would this person who's been convicted of this very violent crime be sending us a sympathy card? And what does that say? And what does that mean? And how do we grieve? And and that's something that almost every tragedy has witnessed is the incarcerated actually tend to send a lot of mail. Um, and they do it to these sites of tragedy, which just from a, you know, anthropological kind of viewpoint, sociolo- uh, sociology perspective was fascinating to me. And so to make that interview for prison phone calls, you only get to talk for about 15 minutes and you have to wait half an hour before you can call someone back. So we had an interview that spanned like a whole day of just waiting by the phone and calling <laughs> back and forth to have this hours long conversation about grief and activism and being incarcerated and I have no idea if this person is really innocent or guilty. And, and honestly, I, I don't care. You know, that wasn't what our conversation was about. But one of the things he says to me in the interview, and which I found so profound, was that he said, you know, in here, everybody finds a way to do their sentence. And to me, that was like this huge philosophical statement about grief and life is we're all just trying to find a way to do our time. And for some of us, like it's, we're literally in prison or our lives feel like prisons and it can feel like a sentence, especially when we're grieving or going through one of life's more painful moments. But we're all in this uh, same trappings of our human existence together. We all have to find our way through the world, which is imperfect and painful and full of suffering. So I loved the way he was finding his way and i found it really inspiring.
0: That's a great way to end up <laughs> an interview. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. No. Um no, i really like that and i think we're going to have a lot of quotes to put on instagram out of this. So, uh mm-hmm. thanks very much, Ashley.
2: Yeah, it was so fun to talk to you.
1: And that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. The sign up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating
0: it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend.
1: This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia, so excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. theme music is It's Time by Scottie Couttie Casca. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. What? <laughs> Why didn't you tell us? I gotta surprise <laughs> you in the interview with oh, fun great.
0: fact. No pressure. You're gonna be like, this is the worst podcast I've ever heard, and here's... yeah.